So thanks a lot for coming today. I caught the end of the, the last session. I thought it was very interesting. Uh, I'm here to talk about specifically about engagement with parliamentary select committees. Uh, I'm aware that I've got two people next to me who probably know a lot more about parliament and select committees and geography in the 15th century than, uh, than I do. Uh, but in a way, engaging with parliamentary select committees is how I came to be here. The project I was involved in was uh, providing academic support to a committee which was formed in 2010, so during the previous parliament. Uh, the committee existed for five years, then ceased to exist in, uh, in 2015, or technically, although there, there were complaints about it being abolished, I think what technically happened was it wasn't uh, recreated, I think is probably the, the, the entirely correct. Am I, right? Am I right on that one? Yeah. And uh, because it was one that some committees uh, need to actually, to do with the standing orders, need to be recreated to carry on existing. This one didn't need, did need to be recreated, but wasn't. Uh, either way, the committee was called the uh, House of Commons Committee on Political and Constitutional Reform. Uh, soon got abbreviated, I think, to PCRC, so the Political and Constitutional Reform Committee. One of the reasons it came into existence was because in 2010, as we know, coalition government was formed and the leader of the smaller party, now even smaller, you might say, party in, in the coalition, the Liberal Democrats, uh, uh, Nick Clegg, was made Deputy Prime Minister, but also given a kind of policy brief uh, and for a while he seemed to be known as Secretary of State for Political and Constitutional Reform, which was obviously a, a long-standing part of, of the Lib, Lib, Lib Dem uh, policy agenda and something they tried to take into government. So that was, in a way, the specific job he was given alongside having this title of Deputy Prime Minister. And the way that uh, a lot of the select committees in the House of Commons works, and this is where the history of it comes in, since, since 1979 and the reforms to the, the House of Commons uh, select committee system then, is that they shadow particular departmental policy briefs. So you have a Treasury select committee, you have a Home Affairs select committee. So the Treasury select committee will be looking at what the Treasury is doing, the Home Affairs select committee will be looking at the Home Office, so on and so forth. The Foreign Affairs committee looking at the uh, Foreign Office. They don't all exactly do that, and some of them you might say, including the one, one I'm talking about today, possibly uh, stretches uh, their remit, because the, the initial idea of select committees and the way they're described in the standing orders tends to be that they're there to look at the, the administration, expenditure, and policy of the departments. But that's quite an open-ended brief that they often fill in in the way that suits particularly the chairs, but also the chairs and the members and the clerks between them figure out what they're going to do. And there is often scope for quite a lot of interpretation of what that brief is. So I had been, I had before coming to this task, had a few years before worked for the MP who became chair of this committee, the Political and Constitutional Reform Committee. And when the committee was set up, we had a discussion about what the chair wanted to do. He had a long-standing interest in the idea that 
the United Kingdom should get a written constitution. So he was very interested in, as chair of this committee, actually running some kind of inquiry into this subject area. So I guess point number one, lesson number one there is it was useful to me that I already had a network in the sense that I, w I knew this, this chair and had worked with him, worked for him and maintained contact with him after not working uh, with, for him any longer so that I was able, by maintaining networks, you can, you can be in touch with people in, in the political environment who it can be helpful. We're getting feedback. Shall I stand somewhere? Probably. Would, could that be, can that cause feedback? What should I do? Just, uh, I'll put it here. Right, we're not getting feedback now. That might be, it might be I'm too, I'm too close to the, okay. Well, we'll just have to live with it like this. Uh, so, maintaining networks was important, and that led to this discussion. I suppose a significant change, again, a historical factor here is that in 2010, for the first time, elections were introduced for chairs of select committees, and also elections up to a point for select committee members. Before that point, since 1979, before then even, although uh, select committees are there to help hold the government to account, it's actually the whips, the people responsible for discipline within Parliament, who actually effectively determined who were members of select committees. There was some criticism of that arrangement because it meant that effectively the government was having an influence on determining who was going to scrutinise it, which you could say in other areas, in other, that kind of accountability arrangement wouldn't be acceptable. So it was changed and a system whereby uh, select committee chairs were elected by the whole house was introduced. And that's probably partly the reason that the particular chair to this committee was elected, because it's probably less likely that the whips would have chosen uh, this chair, uh, because there's, uh, I, I think it's probably fair to say that uh, the whips were reluctant to pick people who they regarded as uh, being likely to pursue more, uh, more independent uh, objectives. Although there were some excellent chairs before 2010, that's not in question. So that's an important change historically. So what did I actually do with this committee is probably what you want to know. Uh, the, the idea of looking at whether or not we should get a written constitution is obviously a very long-running debate in UK history. It's certainly a long, it's a, it's a typical essay question, really, that we set for constitutional law students, historians. What, why hasn't the UK got, got a written constitution? Should the UK get a written constitution? What are the arguments for and against that kind of thing? That's been rehearsed endlessly in academia and in political discussion. Obviously, some people would say, well, we don't have a completely unwritten constitution. Bits of it are written down. I won't get into all of that now. Just to say that although it's been looked at endlessly in academia, there had never been a parliamentary inquiry specifically into this subject area before. And it is a very big subject area, particularly given that there hadn't really been any official work of this type gone on before. So to make this work properly, uh, it was clear that there had to be a lot of research work done, which was where the idea 
of getting some kind of academic support came in. Now, select committees have long worked with academics and have appointed, for instance, specialist advisors to advise them on specific inquiries or to give them ongoing support. That's, that's nothing new. And select committees also have excellent uh, teams of clerks working for them, but uh, they're relatively small teams. And when they get specialist advisors, the actual funding that's available to pay for them isn't immense. So a lot of things are done relatively speaking on the cheap. And actually, I think it's incredible that we get such a high quality uh, standard of, of report out of, of select committees, given how stretched they are, how much work they're required to do. So the idea was that for such a substantial inquiry, it'd be quite a good idea if we were to get a actual academic support team that, of, of experts in the area who could actually provide ongoing support over the course of a whole parliament looking at this subject area. So that's what we did. And uh, we uh, essentially got funding from two funders, from Joseph Roundtree Charitable Trust and from Nuffield Foundation to actually pay to have staff on board who could supplement what was being done by the committee and hopefully add to it uh, by carrying out academic support, writing papers, briefing the chair, briefing other members, talking to the members about their particular interests, and working through the whole course of a parliament. So what was really innovative there, I suppose, was first that this was an inquiry over a whole parliament, which is, is uh, not entirely normal. Also the fact that there was a specific academic support team, and the fact that it was actually specifically funded out from outside sources for, the pur for, for that purpose. As far as we're aware, that wasn't, hadn't really been done before. And we'll hear from Jess in a minute, who, you know, the, the team which she ran, the scrutiny unit, provide, as I understand it, support for select committees when they need additional support. So there is additional support there. But this kind of specific focused support from outside academics funded in that way was original. So that was our way of engaging. There were, there were many other ways in which academics might engage with select committees. So suppose from submitting evidence is quite a useful one. And I think we talked about that bit, a bit in the previous session, but just submitting evidence to inquiries. Maybe they'll get called to give oral evidence. Also informally, just talking to members of inquiries, talking to the chair, talking to the clerks as well. All those kind of things are useful. And over time, you can build up a relationship. But this was a slightly unusual model. As far as I'm aware, it hasn't been replicated subsequently. Uh, the funders, when we discussed it with them, were keen on doing this once. They said, we'd like to fund this once. If it goes well, we don't think that charities should be meeting the cost of this. We think that actually it should be public funds that are providing for this ultimately. But clearly, you know, getting public funds, particularly in current climate for that kind of thing, is not, is not an easy thing to achieve. So whether we'll get there even in the, in the medium term is, is not entirely clear. But we did, in terms of, as academics, what did we get out of it? Well, it helped me get a job here, so I did quite well out of it. Uh, I can't really complain about that, which is where I came in at the beginning, talking about how I came to be here. But also, it, it, it was very useful for the academics involved in that they were able to uh, provide 
substantial evidence to the inquiry, discuss things with the, the members of the committee, and at the end of it all, have the uh, outputs actually published. There were various technicalities that we had to go through over what was the actual status of the stuff we provided, was it official public, was it official committee evidence, was it rather, was it official committee publication, or was it evidence accepted by the, uh, by the committee. A lot of those internal things were worked through, but in the end, to the outside observer, probably those distinctions aren't immense. But at the end of it all, we got to be able to say we'd, we'd supported this useful inquiry. The chair was certainly seemed to be happy with the work we provided that we were able to supplement the support he'd have otherwise got. And we produced a lot of substantial, uh, substantial in their size at least, I hope in their significance as well, uh, outputs from it and managed in the end to uh, get, even get them printed up in hard copy which is increasingly difficult to achieve. So for us it was certainly a useful way of, uh, of founding, finding an outlet for our work. I'm, I'm pretty certain it became an impact case study for somebody in the last uh, ref, not me because I wasn't, wasn't, uh, wasn't a, a fully blown academic when it started. But certainly, it was useful from that point of view, and it's built on networks further, and we're continuing to expand them there. So I'm going to hand over now to others who have more first-hand experience of Parliament than myself. But that's a, a case study I, I, I hope is useful to consider, and I'm happy to take questions on. Thank you.